Well, good morning, everyone. Excited to uh, be here. Uh, <clears throat> if you would have been here sometime from Wednesday to Friday, you would not have recognized this place. It was t- turned into an outside paradise. That's a good word. Thank you, Mom. An outside paradise. It's kind of like they brought uh, the Garden of Eden indoor, uh, in a way, and uh, there was a group, the, the uh, homeschool group, hosted a, uh, a ball-style dance that night, but they had done a bunch of decorations. It was, uh, it was uh, truly amazing, uh, a great time. I'm sure it was had by all. And, uh, and then, boom, in an instant, this place was transformed back to the way that you see it now. We hosted a memorial service uh, Saturday morning at 11. And uh, I, I just want to quiz. Like, who was the last one out of the church Friday night? Does anybody know? There you are. What time did you leave Friday night? Or was it Saturday morning? 12.20. Give Tanya a hand. She's a trooper. And not just her. There was a whole bunch. I mean, you look at, like, there's these kids up in the front row that were involved, the parents. I mean, everybody's here. It wasn't just Tanya. But uh, everybody was here in the changeover. And as I mentioned, we had a memorial service for Doris Olson. I don't know if you, if you uh, lived in this area for very long. And if you do like I do and do all your shopping at the Blue Creek Mercantile, uh, you would have known Doris Olson and, and what a great lady she was. And uh, I, I would just want to encourage you in this way. She was gracious. She's probably one of the most gracious ladies that I know. And uh, super, super lady. Loved the Lord. Um, she passed away over a year ago, actually. So this memorial service was a long time in coming. Um, but uh, we were glad to... We were glad to remember her. Uh, a lot of people shared some memories, and, uh, and those are just really good things. And I guess we could continue to keep the Olson family in our prayers um, and, uh, and hold them up, even in this time. As, you know how it's like when you, get a, you have a memorial service. Even though there's some distance between the, the death and the memorial service, there's still kind of that flood of emotion and memories that come in. And so, um, yeah, just hold that whole family up in your prayers. Uh, we've been studying through Psalms, and uh, we're, we're moving forward in that again today. Uh, we've looked at uh, several of the different Psalms that David has written. Uh, today we're going to take a look at a Psalm that was written by what they, their affectionate name is the Sons of Korah. The Sons of Korah. And uh, the Sons of Korah are kind of interesting. There's kind of a a lot of background. We won't dive deep into the background of these guys, but they were essentially uh, Levites who were the worship leaders at the temple in Israel. That's kind of the short and the, uh, the, uh, the fast of it. Before we dive into this particular psalm, I want to set it up this way. Uh, it was super, super important psalm, very influential uh, to one Martin Luther. In fact, John Trapp, an English Anglican Bible commentator, uh, he was a headmaster, he was a chaplain, he was a vicar in England, which is uh, the, another word for the word pastor. Um, he lived between 1601 and 1669, born in 1601, died in 1669. 
Uh, and he's an interesting guy. I was doing a little bit of reading on him. He really has some neat quotes. And uh, he's, a, he's a guy that's, uh, I think, for his day in the 1600s, was kind of edgy in this way. And I'll, I'll, this is just one example of that, that component. He says this. He says in this pithy quote, he says, Be careful what book you read, for as water tastes of the soil it runs through, so does the soul taste of an author that a man reads. Pretty straightforward. He says, hey, be careful. Be careful. This is, now, this is not in the technology age. This is still, you know, getting their oil from uh, Wales age. And he says, be careful what you're taking in. Be careful what your sources of information are. Because just like as water runs through soil, our soil out here on the farm is heavy, heavy clay, and it has a lot of iron in it. And guess what our water tastes like? You might as well be out in the shop chewing on a piece of metal, right? Right? Right. We're all in on this. You guys get the point. And he says this idea, he says, For as water tastes of the soil it runs through, so does the soul taste of the authors that a man reads. I kind of like that quote. But John Trapp says this of the psalm that we're going to read. He says of Luther, he says, Luther, when in greatest distress was wont to call for this psalm, saying, let us sing the 46th psalm in concert, and then let the devil do his worst. So today we're looking at the 46th psalm, and uh, with that kind of quote, that kind of entry, I'll ask you to turn there. And the 46th psalm is really, it's a beautiful and it's a powerful psalm that is encouraging to God's people. It's, a, it's the type of psalm uh, that can really refocus us on the truths of who God is and how much He cares, and also what He's doing on our behalf. So let's dive into that 46th Psalm. It says this, first verse, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is our refuge and our strength. So these sons of Korah, they come right out of the gate, kind of like David does in a way, in some of the Psalms that we've already studied. He, they come right out of the gate and they make this huge proclamation. God is our refuge and our strength. He's our refuge and our strength. Three books specifically in the Old Testament talk about an idea uh, that was a part of the judicial system in Israel in, in the Old Testament. Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua all talk about this idea of a city of refuge. There was an idea in ancient Israel, it's called the city of refuge. Now, in our culture, I, the, the thought that occurred to me was what's going on in our culture that sounds similar? And is it the same as what was happening in Israel back in the day? Back then they called it the city of ref, refuge, and there were six cities, I'll list them in a second. Today, though, we have, today we have... This idea in America of not a city of refuge, but a what? A sanctuary city. Sounds the same. Really does. City of refuge, sanctuary city. Ah, it's all the same thing. It's not the same thing. They sound familiar, but they're not the same thing. We'll start with the latter. A sanctuary city today are cities here in America that are open to... Uh, Illegal aliens, illegal immigrants coming in. Um, there's, uh, they will not exercise certain current federal laws uh, about 
illegal immigration. They will not work with federal law, enfor law enforcement on these matters. They've, they're pretty much uh, a safe place for illegal immigrants to live without recourse. That's kind of the, uh, if you want a summary of what's going on in certain places, you know, certain cities in America, mostly they're all bigger cities, but that's kind of the nuts and bolts. I'm not trying to be political. I'm just saying this is what's going on in our country. Uh, not the same thing in ancient Israel where we have an idea of a city of refuge. They served a different purpose. God had chose six cities in Israel to be a refuge for someone that had committed a crime. The cities of Golan, Ramoth, Basor, Kadesh, Shechem, and Hebron. These cities were spread all up and down Israel, and they served a purpose. They served this type of purpose. These are some of the bullet points. We don't have to go and reread all of Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. But they served this purpose. They served the purpose where a person that had committed a crime could flee to a city of refuge. Uh, say if there was an accidental death. Say if you caused an accidental death. Let's say, you know, you were driving your oxen, <clears throat> you were going over the speed limit, so you're doing, you know, 75, and your oxen got out of control, stumbled, ran over a guy on the side of the road, and, uh, and he died. Uh, the, you, the driver of said oxen, and <clears throat> I really would like to see an oxen that could run 75. That's a different study. You could flee to one of these cities, one of these cities of refuge. Uh, once they had arrived, they were to report into the city elders as to what had happened. Now, this is, I'm getting these bullet points out of a, out of a mixture of the three uh, Old Testament books that I talked about. But uh, <clears throat> once they had arrived, they were to report into the city of elders what, what had happened, what the crime was, what was going on. The elders would then um, find that person living quarters, Meanwhile, the elders of the town where the crime was committed would set a trial, would ask for the accused to be returned for that trial, uh, what we call in our country being extradited. If you're extradited from one place to another, uh, that's kind of that same concept. Uh, a trial would be held. Uh, if the person was guilty, they would pay for that crime, even up to death. If they were innocent, the accused was to be returned to the city of refuge without harm to kind of serve out their sentence, so to speak. Uh, all in all, it was a system that God created to bring order and justice and to protect the accused, uh, really from a, the lynch mob mentality that could spring up so easy. That was the idea of a city of refuge. And it's interesting that God uses that same word about himself. He's our refuge. He's that safe place. He's, he sees himself. He proclaims to you and he proclaims to me. Hey, I'm the place that you can go to. I'm the place. I'm the person that you can go to that's safe. I think that that plays out for us on an individual level. I think it also plays out when it comes to us as, uh, are, is your, are you a person that's a city of refuge, kind of in reflection of your relationship with God? Are you a safe person to be around? Is your marriage a, a safe harbor for people to come to where they can get help? Is your family operate in that mindset, in that, in that way, where you can be a, a blessing to people? You can be a safe place for people to come to and, and uh, where they can be encouraged and, and kind of regroup? Is it that way for our church? We've talked about that in the past. Uh, quite a few years ago, we, we've seen that you know uh, our church should be, every church... Every church should be 
We definitely want ours to be a safe harbor for people that are hurting in life. Uh, the reality is, is that we get pretty banged up. And people get pretty, uh, pretty roughed up in life. So is this church a place that's a safe harbor for people to come into while they kind of regroup and get back up on their feet? While they, they come in contact with who Jesus is and, and they're, they're pressed up into that scenario where, you know, uh, Jesus is the answer for them and, and they have to wrestle with that for a while. And is this church, is this body, do we operate in that way? Do we help people in that way? Not try to, you know, take the consequences out of their life. I talked about that a little bit last week. That's not what I'm talking about. But is it a safe place where as a body we're pointing people to Jesus and we're helping them grow and nurture them up? God is our refuge, our shelter in the storm. He also classifies himself this way. He says he is our strength. He is our strength. Like the Old Testament cities, uh, the cities that are mentioned, uh, God's saying, hey, I'm strong for you. Uh, Maybe a better way to look at it is he's strong. He is strong in us. I am your strength. What's your source of strength? What's your source of of ability? What's your source of effort? Is it in yourself? Do you see that I got to just do more for God? I got to do more for God. I got to be strong for God. I got to be strong. If I don't defend the gospel, in other words, we get these mentalities that it's all up to us and it's all up to our own abilities. It's all up to how much I can muster up. God says, I will be your strength. He says, I'm going to be your energy source. He's a refuge. And he's our strength. Psalm 46 is a psalm. It's kind of like a road map in a way. It says what God is like in our lives, but it also kind of tells you where it's going. Why do we need God? A couple of questions to write down. Why do we need God as our refuge? Why do we need God as our strength? I'm going to just let those two questions kind of linger in the air a little bit. I definitely have some answers myself, but I think it's good that we ponder a little bit and uh, asking ourselves the why question in relationship to, to who God is, is always a, it's always a good thing. So I'll let you guys write down a few notes about that. But the psalmist goes on to say, and he answers, he answers it in this way. Verse 2, therefore we will not fear. Because of who God is, we're not going to fear. There's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing, there's nothing that, that, that should trouble us in that way. Therefore, we will not fear, even though, listen to this list, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, and though the mountains shake with its swelling. Selah, think about it. That's what that word means. The answer to fear in our lives is to know and experience God tangibly in our lives. Do we, do, do we understand that concept? <clears throat> the answer to fear in our lives, what our response to, to something that, that, that <clears throat> pumps us full of adrenaline, fear pumps us full of adrenaline, depending upon the scenario. The thing, maybe, maybe fear drags us down into a, you know, kind of this place of despair. Maybe fear uh, is what keeps causing us to just go away, just go away. I, I, I can't deal with them. I'm not a fighter. I'm a fleer. <laughs> or maybe you are a fighter, so fear causes you to just well up and you want to get after it. You want to, you want to go straight into it. 
swinging. Whatever it is, the answer to fear in our lives is to know and experience God tangibly. Tangibly. And, what, and, and, and maybe a different way to ask the question is, what builds that confidence in God? What builds that confidence in God? Dr. George Campbell, British evangelist, preacher, uh, leading Bible teacher of his day, and pro really prolific author. Uh, <clears throat> when I say preacher, uh, I mean lifelong preacher. Uh, how old are you, Josiah? Oh, how old are you? Twelve. Mm. Who's thirteen? John David, you're only 13? Aiden, you're 13? Do you want to come up and preach? <laughs> I really appreciate your honesty. And I wasn't going to make you, but this guy that I'm talking about, he started preaching when he was your age, when he was your age. George Campbell Morgan, first sermon was at the age of 13, and he talks about this idea of the confidence in God in this quote. He said, the secret of the confidence... Write this down. The secret of the confidence is the consciousness of the nearness of God. The secret to our confidence in who God is our, our, is a tangible relationship with God, and it's a consciousness of how close He really, really is. And I think some of the biggest traps that we will face, some of the biggest uh, temptations that we will endure is this idea, is that when something comes along, it seems like God's a long way away. It seems like He's just really, really distant. And, and I think the enemy works in our lives in a way where he says, God is so far away, he tempts us with this idea, God's so far away that, that you're left on an island and you're boiling down, you've got one choice. So you need to fall, you need to step into this temp point of temptation, whatever it is. The reality is exactly the opposite. The secret to confidence as God is a consciousness of the nearness of the Lord in our lives. And think back into these verses a little bit. Look back at verse 2 and 3. Think about how drastic the writing is here. These are all natural disasters, or we would call them natural disasters, mentioned here in these two verses. Uh, even though the earth be removed... A cataclysmic global annihilation. That's what, that, that's what that phrase is. Even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, huge shifts in the earth's tectonic plates is what causes mountains to be carried into the sea. Verse 3, though its waters roar and be troubled... Uh, we've seen an uptick. If you look at, <clears throat> I'm sure I, didn't, I didn't print it out, but if you look at a graph of natural disasters in the last 200 years, that graph, and I'll do it backwards for you guys, that graph goes like this. Globally. I'm talking about global natural disasters. That graph in the last, well, maybe more than 200 years, but it takes this huge uptick in recent years. And you guys think about all that we've witnessed and experienced over the last even decade or uh, two decades when it comes to natural disasters. We're just, you know, what are we? 30, was it 30 year reunion of Mount St. Helens? 41. 41. Thank you. I should have known that. I didn't do the math in my head ahead of time. 
You know, huge natural disaster that uh, most of us live through. I should have known that. I remember going outside, headed to school, and uh, my mom was a teacher over at Summit School, and the phone was ringing off the hook, and I decided, well, I might as well go sit in the car. And I went outside, and I came back in and said, Mom, it's snowing. It's snowing. It wasn't the snow. Um, and we didn't have school that day. But it was a bummer because we couldn't go outside. I was in therapy for years over that. So the waters roar and be troubled. The hurricanes, the cyclones, the typhoons, all of these things that we've seen in our even current history. The <clears throat> second half of verse 3, though the mountains shake with its swelling, the massive earthquakes, these potential massive global events pale in comparison to the truth of these two things, that God is our refuge and that God is our strength. They pale in comparison to who God is in our lives, our refuge and our strength, and whom we can grow close to in relationship and then have full confidence in His good plan for us. Uh, Whatever the cause of our fear, God calls us to compare it to His greatness. Whatever the cause of our fear, God is calling us to submit to His master plan and to watch Him deal with that fear. That, that, that's, that's where it's easy to hold on to that fear. It's e- we, that's part of the temptation is, is that, that, that you just hold on to that fear. You know why? Because that's the way that you're created. It's a lie. It's part of my personality. That's not, it might have been, but are you going to submit to that to the Lord? Some of us are way more prone to fear than others. I get that. But are we going to submit it Are we going to take those things that derail our faith and are we going to submit it to the Lord? Are we going to submit it to His master plan and watch Him deal with it in our lives? Let's move on. Actually, before we move, I want to insert this piece of encouragement out of Deuteronomy chapter 3. Kind of near the end of Moses' life, he spoke to the Israelites to encourage them uh, in this idea of kind of pressing on. That's kind of a, my summary of chapter 3. And if you're looking for a verse to overlay your current fear or to overlay when you uh, come onto something that makes you fearful, Deuteronomy 3, chapters, or chapter 3, verse 6 is a great one where Moses says this. He says, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you and will not leave you nor forsake you. That's an awesome verse to to carry with us in our minds, carry with us as a quote of who God is in relationship to the things that can bring trepidation into our lives. What a wonderful promise for those that follow the Lord. The psalmist continues here. These sons of Korah continue by giving us a wonderful picture of the dwelling with, of what it means to dwell with God. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says this, it says, There's a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. God shall help her just, as the break, just at the break of dawn. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. 
The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. There's a great uh, comparison if you think about all of these natural disasters that they were just singing about and writing about uh, and then compare them to these ideas. The idea of a river. The river is a symbol of provision and abundance giving life to everyone and everything that dwells nearby. That's uh, the picture of gladness. The river whose stream shall make glad the city of God. A little fun fact, do we know this uh, about geography, geography, is that Jerusalem is perhaps maybe the only, I don't know if I'd say the only, but one of the very few, I guess you would say, Jerusalem is one of the only, I, I wrote only, one of the only ancient cities that has no river or major water source in it or nearby. Jerusalem doesn't have a river. You think about all the, uh, the uh, cities, even in America, you know, that are, that are on some sort of a water source, whether it's the ocean, whether it's an inlet, whether it's a river. Um, Jerusalem doesn't have that. Yet it's interesting also, prophetically, both Ezekiel and John, who wrote the book of Revelation, anticipated the day when a mighty river would flow from the, from the temple itself. The psalmist here is really saying the same thing. Really kind of saying the same thing. There's a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God, a holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. This idea of city of God, the dwelling place of God. It's unmovable, unshakable, by comparison to the previous few verses. Though the nations raged and the kingdoms were moved. Doesn't that sound familiar today? If we listen to any kind of news at all, it just seems like the nations are always in a stir. Right now the Middle East is on fire with the nations being stirred. The rest of the world is trying to figure out like, who are we going to talk about and how are we going to talk about them? You know, how can, we, how can we try to insert peace? And everybody's stirred up, and everybody wants to condemn Israel. A lot of the nations are wanting to condemn Israel, or are condemning Israel. Not saying too much about the other side, other than, well, maybe they should stop throwing a few rockets. Hundreds and hundreds of rockets a day. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. Probably one of the most powerful statements in the Bible. Right in verse second half of verse 6. What always mystifies me when I turn on the news and I hear all this banter back and forth and all this geopolitical wrangling that goes on. And I sit in my chair and I ask myself this question. Do people understand that God can melt this place down in a nanosecond? Like all that's going on, that he could literally think about it and it would be evaporated. evaporated. It, would, it would just go away. Like that's the kind of power that the Creator has. We want to fight and wrangle over a chunk of ground in the Middle East. People really understand that God can melt the earth with a word. Yet, verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. 
The commander, when you talk about the Lord of hosts, a little word on that, that's the commander of the armies of heaven. It's not a little, you know, chubby statue, you know, that sits on people's dash of their car. It's not a, you know, a little altar like when I was down in Juarez and and you go to the mall and we're kind of coming into the mall, which is kind of an open air type of a thing, but people are flowing in and I'm a real people watcher. So I kept observing as people were going in, they come up to this little altar, kneel down there, do their thing, you know, and, and there's, you know, Jesus still on the cross and the Virgin Mary and there's candles and there's water and there's all this gizmos and stuff. <clears throat> That's not it. That isn't it. We're talking about the Lord of hosts, the commander of the armies of heaven who's with us, who, who wants to, who desires to deal with whatever issue is in your life as the Lord of hosts. And, and there's all kinds of descriptions that we can look through the Word of God and see uh, uh, how God is described. Here he's described as the Lord of hosts. He's in charge. Do we operate our lives in such a way that God is in charge? That it doesn't matter decision, big or small. doesn't matter about the decisions we think we can handle or not. Do we operate under that command? Because he's with us. He also says he's the God of Jacob. The God of Jacob is our refuge. The one who made provided for, rescued and redeemed a whole nation. I put all those descriptions in there on purpose. The nation of Israel. He made them. He provided for them. He rescued them. He let them, he let them run this cycle that we see all through the Old Testament. But it's a cycle that we know is true of us as well. And that's this cycle. You know, we're, we're, we're in great relationship with God. And then our eyes start to get off focus. We fall to temptation. And then the nation of Israel is out of relationship with God. And things start going really poorly. And so what do they do? They start to squeal. They start to scream. They start to cry and wail and moan and carry on. And all of a sudden, oh, that's right. We've forsaken our God. And so they're down here. So then the next step is they repent they repent, they come before God, they confess their sins, they acknowledge their need of Him, they acknowledge their reliance on Him, and then they're back into that right relationship. It's that whole cycle. You see it run all through the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. We can see it in our own lives if we're really looking. The God that made us, we can take what I wrote down here in regard to Israel and apply it to ourselves as well. The one that made us, has provided for us, has rescued us and redeemed us and created us into his own family, his own nation of believers. Uh, he's the guy that's saying, I want to be your refuge. Not that I want to be, that he is our refuge. He's the place in which we can find some relief, some peace. even a small sliver of sanity 
It really reminds me of this description of God being with us and for us as our refuge. In Ephesians chapter 2, there's Apostle Paul writes these words, starting in verse 4. He says, But God, who is rich in mercy, think about that description that I just laid out. Think about what you know of the Old Testament. He says this, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, we just sang about that a little bit ago, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when Israel had kind of swung through and had fallen to temptation and had you know, intermarried with other nations and they, were, they struggled with idolatry all the way through, just a couple of kings during the era of the kings you know, that held the line. They always had those high places of worship, always had those high places in their lives of idolatry that they would not, they would not, they chose not to intentionally, they wouldn't take them down, even though God had said many, many times, get away from the idolatry, get away from worshiping the way that you think you should worship and worship the way that I am leading you to worship, the way that I command you to worship. They wouldn't, they wouldn't take out the idolatry. They were, and we know that we are, we were, even when we were dead in our trespasses, not in relationship with Christ. No, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What a place of refuge. That, it, <clears throat> that in the ages to come, he might show his exceedingly riches of his, the, the exceedingly riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's prepared a pathway for each one of us that we should walk in them. Back to Psalm 46, verse 8. Come behold the works of the Lord. Come behold the works of the Lord, the sons of Korah say, who has made desolations in the earth, who makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two, and he burns the chariots in fire. The idea of God being our refuge, this prominent idea in the first seven verses of Psalm 46. Now the emphasis changes in the last four verses in a shift to a consideration of God's glory. So first we have, we have refuge and strength. This is who God is in our lives. Right? This is, this is how that plays out, regardless of what's going on. Kind of a little summary of what we've already read for several verses. And now that shift switches to God's glory. God's glory shows up in the works that he does. What does he do here in these verses? He stops the fighting. And he breaks the weapons of war. Uh, I'm going to propose that these truths play out on a variety of different levels. The psalmist invites us to look at God's glory, and he uses the language that resonates in uh, the warrior fashion. He uses language that would resonate with the fighters. 
That's why we have this type of language. Who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease. He makes the, breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. And he burns the chariot in the fire. Not chariots of fire. We're all engaged in some level of conflict. The psalmist says that God is ending all of that. So there's these different areas that I was thinking about as I was writing this down. And we can go from the smallest to the largest or the largest to the smallest. I wrote them down, I guess, largest to smallest. Uh, He stops the fighting and he breaks the weapons of war. He ends the global fight. There will be a day when there's no more global fighting. Would be nice if that was sooner rather than later. Uh, But the prevailing worldview, what about this global fight? The prevailing worldview versus a biblical worldview. There will be a day when that fighting will end too. What about the local fight? What about the tensions that we experience at the local level? Or what about the family fight? The conflicts that arise at home and cause division. What about the marital fight? The struggle to live with, uh, as we've been studying on Thursday nights, the struggle to live with pink and blue differences. We, those of you that have taken the love and respect uh, marriage class, you, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, Emerson Egelrich talks about these different I- ideas that, <clears throat> that men uh, see through blue lenses and hear through you know, blue uh, uh, hearing aids, and ladies speak through a, look through a pink lens and hear through pink hearing aids. And there's tension, and tensions arise, and tensions will arise. Apostle Paul says it. Marriage is a good thing, but just know that if you're going to get married, that uh, you will experience many troubles. Not exactly what everybody would say at a wedding as it's getting started. I'm looking over here at our newlyweds. Oh, newlyweds, you guys aren't married yet. I'm looking over here at our soon-to-be-marrieds. And they know this because I've been joking with them about it already. But, but this is, there's always a struggle. Someday that struggle is going to cease. Uh, I'm going to propose that in a lot of these areas, those struggles cease the more uh, we embrace God as our refuge and as our strength. Then there's the personal fight, the wars in our own lives that threaten to destroy, destroy us, our own proclivities in areas of temptation, our own areas of that uh, we stray away from God, our own tensions that we have either, like Paul says, the thing I want to do, I can't do or don't do, and the thing I don't want to do, that's what I do. That's that personal struggle that we all uh, grapple with from time to time. In these five areas, my question is, uh, do we see from sitting inside God as our refuge and experiencing Him as our strength, do we see these areas of fighting? Do we see God stopping them in our lives? And if we don't see God stop, if we don't see God dealing with the the tension in life, regardless of what size it is, uh, I think there's a good time to ask ourselves, how come we don't see that? 
I think it's a good time to do a little self-evaluation, a little self-reflection. The enemy is always attacking these five aspects of our lives with the motivation, according to Jesus, to kill, steal, and destroy. The Apostle Paul identifies that our main battle, though, <clears throat> is not in the physical realm, it's in the spiritual realm. That's why it says in Ephesians chapter 6, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, verse 10, and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of this darkness, of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Real battle, real tension, a real enemy. The Apostle Paul says there in verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. So whatever area that you and I are dealing with currently, whatever part that's, that, uh, uh, of the uh, ongoing struggle there is, first and foremost, it's spiritual. But God says that their solution is the same. God says that the solution is the same. Back to Psalm 46. So we get down to the end. Verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. Sometimes I think that 99% of the, uh, the uh, ease to the, the tension and the fighting and the struggles in our lives comes down to those words. Our culture will run us in a hamster wheel 100 miles an hour if we let it. The question is, are we going to be still and know God? Are we going to be still and know that He's God? I will be exalted among the nations, the Word says, and I will exalt, be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. The battles we face in life, if the worship team wants to come on up, we'll close this thing out. The battles that we face in life are to be viewed with the lens of these exhortations from your Heavenly Father. The idea of being still. I think it's kind of two-pronged in a sense. One, we need to be still when we're tempted to be flighty, but I think it also applies, uh, applies in this way, is that God will bring a stillness to the battle. God's, I, I believe He wants to bring a stillness to the tensions that we face, to the struggles that we face, to the fighting. He wants to bring a stillness to that as well as a stillness to you, and it's for His glory. That's how he, he wants to interact in our lives. That's what we have to pull out of this. The second one is, is know that I am God. Know that I am God. Uh, the idea there of knowing is not just head knowledge. It's not just intellect. It's not just about being able to, you know, soak in scores and scores and scores of information and that it's locked in between our ears. 
I'm not saying knowledge is bad, but knowledge is uh, largely ineffective without experience. Uh, I've met a lot of people that like to talk a lot about farming, <clears throat> but they've never driven anything bigger than a lawnmower. There's, and I'm not talking about you, <laughs> although, well, no, you've got bigger equipment. What I'm saying is, is that a lot of people like to talk a big game. They have a lot of facts. They have a lot of figures. They have a lot of information in their heads. They've never drawn a paycheck from what they've gotten out of the ground. They've never had the experience. They've never had the, the ups and the downs. They've never had the joy of harvesting a crop. They've never had the, the struggle of watching that crop melt into the ground under the summer heat and not produce anything. What I'm saying is, is it's, not, it's not about who does or doesn't drive a big tractor. What I'm saying is, is that there's an experience then that goes with the, the knowledge piece. There's an experience that is coupled then with that, that it does something to our knowledge. And if, if all we have of God is just a knowledge of who He is, but no experience with God, we miss out on the biggest part. God's saying here, be still. Know or experience that I am God. He wants us to experience His Lordship in our lives. And he says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted <clears throat> in the earth. Uh, I will guarantee you, at some point, no one on this planet will miss that point. There will be a day that nobody's going to miss that point. Nobody's going to wonder. Nobody's gonna, everybody that thought we'd come out of seawater and goo is going to have a different perspective. Nobody's going to miss this point of who God is. And the fact that He's with us. The commander of the armies of heaven is leading us. And He is our refuge. The God of the Bible, the Old Testament and New Testament... He's inviting us into his family. He's our refuge. He's our safe harbor. And my question for all of us is, have you said yes to that invita invitation? Because today's a good day to say yes to God as Savior. Have you said yes to that invitation from a different perspective? Because today's a good day. If you've said yes to, to, to Jesus as your Savior, that's awesome. Have you said yes to him as Lord? It's a different question. It plays out differently in our lives. A lot of people want the rescue, they want the fire insurance, but they don't want the lordship. They, don't want, the, 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 they want just a few components changed, come in, fix these couple of areas. I just need a little realignment, but I don't need an overhaul. Uh, Jesus isn't our front-end mechanic fixing just the front end. His goal is to overhaul our whole lives. Have we said yes to that invitation? Because today's a good day to say yes to God as Lord. Let's stand together and worship Him. It's the last song. <laughs>